I'm so thrilled to have gotten this award because we were able to initiate the study from there and use some of the preliminary data to actually receive other awards. So I'm just so grateful for the support from LCFA. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. Those advances are the result of the grit, determination, and passion of so many people working to make lung cancer a thing of the past. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. In this episode of the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast, you'll hear why LCFA's mission is funding grants for young researchers. Plus, listen in on a conversation with LCFA board member and Hollywood producer, Marta Kaufman, and LCFA's young investigators about how this grant funding affects their work. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. Lung cancer research. It's critical to finding better treatments and hopefully one day a cure. But it's also a little abstract and hard to picture. It helps to illuminate the faces behind LCFA's mission to understand why the need for increased lung cancer funding is so critical. Let's start with a conversation with LCFA co-founder Kim Norris and Scientific Advisory Board member Dr. David Carbone. Our primary mission was always to fund research, lung cancer research. But when we first had enough money to give our first grant, we turned to our scientific advisory board, which David at the time was the chair of, and we said, okay, we have this money, now how do we spend it? How do we give it away to the best and the brightest? Right. You know, we, we really weren't focused on giving it to a particular institution, we wanted to fund whoever was doing the best work uh, in the field. And David, I remember a conversation we had in the Scientific Advisory Board with you in particular, speaking up about rather than giving a lot of smaller grants, say $50,000 grants to a lot of people, that we could make a bigger impact in the world of lung cancer research if we gave fewer grants, but larger grants, and the grants that we give for the young investigators are 200,000 over two years. And back then, it was really critical that we try to attract the best and the brightest into lung cancer, because back then, lung cancer research was, was not the cool place to be. And young researchers were going to other other fields. So we were focused on what can we do to attract the best and the brightest and create that next generation of researchers. So Dr. talk a little bit about the thought process process behind all of that. Well, Kim's uh, hit it right on the head. I think it's, it's really important to making progress in treating this disease to get the best science applied to lung cancer. 
Um, historically, other cancers have gotten more funding per uh, capita, but and lung cancer was relatively ignored. And the best scientists would look at that landscape and they'd go and study breast cancer or colon cancer or prostate cancer. And, and I, I uh, really advocated for making impactful grants, not just because the 200,000 is, is uh, enough money to really uh, make a difference and find something significant, but it also attracts the best people to apply. And I think for both of those reasons, uh, the LCFA has been extremely successful in attracting some amazing young people. Absolutely. Kim, do you want to talk about some of the really cool research that's going on right now? Oh, boy, I, I am so blown away by the type and the kind of research that we have funded. And again, you're going to hear more about it in the next half hour. But for example, one of our researchers, uh, and you'll hear more from her, is funding, is uh, researching why young women, never smokers, seem to be getting lung cancer. Yeah. I mean, that that's a really critical question that a lot of people, and you've seen today how many women, young women, have been on today. Yes. Uh, so that is an issue. Uh, we have another one. Who's been, we have a couple actually that have been researching the role of what we call the microbiome. That's your the bacteria and fungi in your body and how that impacts immunotherapy treatments. There's some indication that there is a direct impact between the effectiveness of immunotherapy and the microbiome. And Kim, will you just real quickly explain immunotherapy? Immunotherapy is teaching your own immune system how to go after the cancer. So for some people, their immune system recognizes cancer as something bad and goes after it. For other people, for some reason, their immune system looks at the cancer and the, the cancer gets smart and says, hey, no, I'm one of you. I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm really simplifying this terribly. Um, and then the the T cells, the immune system goes away and says, okay, I can ignore that. So the new treatments in immunotherapy um, help the immune system recognize the cancer as the bad guy and go do your job. And it, it has been shown to be extremely successful in lung cancer. And in many ways, lung cancer has been leading the way in the immunotherapy treatment throughout all cancers. Dr. Carbone, what do you think is the most exciting? What's on the horizon? What are we looking at right now in lung cancer research? Well, we've made amazing progress in the last 10 years, uh, almost doubling the five-year survival uh, for lung cancer. We're actually seeing people with stage four lung cancer living uh, apparently without evidence of disease five, six, seven, eight years later, potentially right. even cured of their stage four disease. Uh, because of uh, the research that we're doing in lung cancer. But the fact is that it's not everybody, and we need to figure out how to improve the treatments for other people, uh, for the rest of uh, lung cancer patients. And it's really difficult to um, to guess what the next iPhone will be or the next revolution uh, in lung cancer therapy would be. 
Nope. When I started in research 30 years ago, my first NIH grant was on uh, immunotherapy. And everybody thought that was such a stupid idea. You know, immunotherapy of lung cancer was what a, it was completely ridiculous. And so I think there was only one grant in the study section, so they had to give it to me. But the the fact is that now it's it's taken over and virtually every lung cancer patient gets immunotherapy. So it's hard to predict, but I really think that we're going to make major progress in in improving. Now, I think the end the the yardstick for our um, success will be improving five year survival for metastatic disease, which is something you wouldn't even have thought of 10 years. Ago. Can you define metastatic disease for me, please? Well, that's stage four. That's when the cancer uh, can't be taken out surgically and right. can't be uh, confined into a, a, a tolerable radiation therapy field so that it's spread to other parts of the body. And um, unfortunately, most lung cancers are diagnosed in that stage. Right. I, I hope that changes with the uh, CT screening uh, efforts. But CT screening right now is only applied to um, older smokers. And as we've been talking about, you know, there are many people that get lung cancer who've never touched a cigarette or are younger. I know that you were um, on, on a group that was looking at nasal swabs. Can you talk a little bit about what we would be doing with nasal swabs and lung cancer? Well, that goes along, goes toward early detection um, of lung cancer. One of the the good news, bad news about lung cancer, I've always said, is that it's it's asymptomatic. You can have stage four lung cancer for a long time and not even know it and live, be living a wonderful quality of life. Um, so it's really critical that we found, find ways to detect lung cancer earlier. Right now, the standard is a C, spiral CT scan. Well, that's that's expensive and um, it's just not something that a 40 year old healthy never smoker woman would be told you need to go get that during her annual exam. So if we can come up with an inexpensive way to test for lung cancer, that would be ideal. And some there's some direction going and if you were to go, let's say you had your annual exam and your doctor just took a nasal swab yeah. and through that, they would be able to detect whether you had lung cancer cells in your body or not. That would be a no brainer. That would think of how inexpensive and how everybody could have access to something like that. So those are the kind of exciting directions that are going on right now in the field of lung cancer research. You could get your COVID swab and your lung cancer test. The there you go. <laughs> Dr. Carbone, because funding was so low, um, why did you decide to become a lung cancer researcher? I mean, why did you go into this? Well, I... I um, I have an MD and a PhD, and so I was attracted to genetics. This was, again, 30 years ago before anybody thought of genetics in lung cancer, and I loved medicine, and there, there was really no connection between lung cancer genetics and clinical medicine, but I really wanted to attack a, an important clinical problem and like lung cancer, and I really wanted to uh, apply what I, what I knew about genetics, and so I was just... 
I heard a lecture by a guy named John Minna talking about recurrent gene mutations in lung cancer. And I said, that's a bad disease. And I'll bet you genetics will help uh, find uh, better treatments. And, and I was right. And I've been working in lung cancer my entire career. And for you to see the advances that have happened in the past decade, and especially in the past five, six years, what does that mean to you? It's a totally different uh, feeling. And uh, when I started, most lung cancer patients got no treatment at all. They just got pain medications and handholding and a palliative care. Now, uh, like I said, I can tell patients who are in distress, cancer in every bone in their body. I have a patient that has a, a, one of these driver mutations, uh, was a avid horseback rider, but she had cancer literally in every bone in her body and was in terrible pain. And, and we found the driver and we started treating her. And, and now there, she has no evidence of cancer and she's back to horseback riding. You would never, ever see that historically. So it's it's extremely exciting. Yes. If you notice, uh, you will see in the next segment that every single one of the highlighted young researchers are women. I think it's fantastic that um, we are able to find talent in these uh, in, in, in the young women uh, researchers and fund them and support their careers in lung cancer. Absolutely. Kim, go back five, six, 10 years. What kind of a difference would it have made in your life had this research been around then? Oh, in my life, it would have had to have been 20 years ago. That's when I lost my husband to lung cancer. He was 45 at diagnosis and 47 when he passed away. And back then, the only options were chemotherapy and radiation, and he was stage four, so no surgery. Um, so there was nothing. What, what I find exciting, so David and I have known each other, I don't even know how long now, 16, 17 years I've been doing this. And, and by the way, David is a rock star in the Absolutely. lung cancer research community. And, all, the entire advocate community loves him and thanks him, David, for everything you do and your support for the advocacy. But I can truly say that I have had a front row seat over the last 16 years of some amazing, miraculous discoveries when there was literally no, no options for lung cancer. And now there's a plethora of options. I mean, that just sometimes I just sit back and get a big smile on my face. There's a there's a large uh, cancer cancer research meeting in Chicago, although obviously it didn't happen this year that we all go to every year. And inevitably, lung cancer was always got the back room where it took you well, 20 pretty. minutes just to walk there. And it was a small room and. You know, barely anybody showed up. And it was maybe, what, five or six years ago that we had went to the conference and we got Hall B. Now, that means nothing to most people, but Hall B is the big conference room what, that seats thousands, and it was standing room only. And I just sat back and went, yes, yeah. we've arrived. Absolutely. And that is totally due to the hard work of people like the Carbones and the people you're going to see in the in the interview that we 
that we funded. Um, and to you. That, and well, to you, right? Dr. Cavallon, right. isn't that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the type of science, let me just interject one thing, is that research has been going on for a long time. But the thing that's changed recently is research in the old days for cancer, we used to you know, scrape fungus off of rocks and, and grind up tree bark to try to find things that you put on cells and culture that would kill them. Now, it's precision science. We understand what makes cancers tick and we target that specifically. So what works amazingly in one patient won't work at all in another. And we understand to a large degree exactly why that is. And that's the kind of science that LCFA is funding, understanding these Achilles heels, the specific mechanisms that drive cancers that can be targeted in a smart way. So how many biomarkers are there at this point and how many have treatment? <laughs> uh, a lot. Uh, it's, I don't know, I forget how many are in the NCCN guidelines. It's something like eight, but there are many more that uh, we are discovering and you probably won't find genetic targets in everyone, even if you saw every gene. It's just that some lung cancers are driven by these drivers and some are driven by immune escape and some are driven by other things. And so I think we've made major progress in genetically targeted therapies. We've, we're making progress with targeting one pathway in the immune system, but the immune system is complex. There's dozens of pathways. And, and I think there will be targets and mechanisms that we can't imagine right now that'll be uncovered by future research to apply to more and more patients. And how important is that, especially so many of our interviews today talked about either they've been on one, two or three different types of therapies that um, Tabitha, I think said, I look at this as I'm a frog jumping from lily pad to lily pad. And I thought that was a great analogy because um, they're waiting because the cancer is so smart. and. Um, and we had another uh, another one of our speakers who explained what it's like. Ivy talked about what it's like to have to have to have scanxiety because every three months she's got to go in and then I don't care if it's 15 minutes. If you have to go in and wait to find out, am I still healthy or is it back? Yeah. Man, that has to really grind on you. Yeah. Well, I'm a cancer survivor myself. And so I totally understand that. And um not only have we discovered targets and drugs for those targets, but we've discovered better drugs for those targets as time's gone on. For ALK targeting, you know, we start out with crizotinib, but it doesn't get into the brain and many people relapse in the brain and now electinib gets into the brain and other ALK targeting drugs. So we're doing better and better at uh, discovering these drugs, but still, like you um, described, we're not curing these people in general, that if they live long enough, they will event the cancer will eventually outsmart the drug. So to me, the next thing we need to focus on now that we've got really quite good drugs is is to figure out how not just to suppress the cancer, but to kill it completely to cure it, you know, like they cure lymphoma or leukemia. Now you give an intense treatment of multiple drugs for a short period of time, and then you can stop and they're cured. Right. Uh, with with uh, some leukemias, I, I think that 
if we are smart, we will try to figure out exactly what makes those few cells in the body survive the treatment, sometimes for years, and figure out how to specifically kill them so that you can, you can treat for a period of time and then stop and the patient will be cured. And we see that with immune therapies. I have multiple patients that have had uh, a complete response with immune therapy and we stop and years later, they're completely fine. What we need to do is we need to figure out a way to do that with targeted therapies, with with the driver mutant ther targeted therapies. Kim, you've been doing this for more than a decade. What do you hope for in the next five years? What do you see? What do I see or what do I hope for? Oh. We have what I hope for is that LCFA will be put out of business because there will be no need for us anymore. There's an amazing goal. No need for LCFA any longer. Until then, LCFA's co-founders, board members, and young investigators will continue their work on cutting-edge lung cancer research and patient advocacy. And coming up next, you'll hear from some LCFA-funded young investigators, all young women who are dedicating their careers to lung cancer research. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast? Consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. As you just heard, LCFA targets funding for early stage research so that the young investigators can gather the initial data they need to apply for larger and more extensive grants. To find out more about why these grants are so important, let's listen into a fascinating conversation between LCFA board member and Hollywood producer Marta Kaufman and some of LCFA's young investigators. So I'm, I'm curious um, about how funding like LCFA's Young Investigator, Investigator Grants helps launch your research careers into hopefully lifelong contributions to better lung cancer treatments and maybe one day a cure. Uh, I can take this one. So we all know that lung cancer is the largest cancer killer in the world. However, with government funding, it's only about 2% of government funding goes to lung cancer research, which I think should definitely improve over the years. And I study small cell lung cancer, which is the most aggressive form of lung cancer. It uh, causes about deaths of 30,000 Americans per year. And it only has a very, uh, it's very underfunded. Let's, let me just say that. So uh, organizations like LCFA and their funding has really helped me. I want to study how I can reactivate the immune system in small cell lung cancer and how that can make immunotherapy better, which is not doing so well for small cell lung cancer patients. So this in initial funding will help me get some key data that I then need to prove my hypothesis, to build upon that and help clinicians uh, who are in the clinic to design their clinical trials better because the biomarkers and 
uh, the therapies that I show in my preclinical models will help uh, uh, the clinicians guide their clinical trials. So I think these initial funding will really go a long way personally in my career, in my research, in getting those key initial data that will then, upon which I can build better, bigger projects, better projects, which unfortunately uh, may not be funded otherwise from our conventional government funding system. Uh, the, so I'm really thankful to LCFA for having these uh, Young Investigator Award systems. Can I piggyback that on that and say, um, with respect to federal funding, what, what you don't realize until you start writing federal grants is that from the time you write it to the time it gets funded, maybe, and about the National Cancer Institute funding cutoff is eighth percentile, around eighth percentile. So it means eight out of 100 grants get funded. Um, so not only is the funding line very low, but it also takes at least a year from the time you submit a grant to the time it's reviewed to the time it's reviewed again. So I think funding from organizations like LCFA helps us to build critical foundations to advance our work while we're also um, broadening our grant repertoire with federal grants. And so foundation grants from LCFA and federal grants are absolutely complementary and could not do without either one of them. I, I agree. I think Funding is, uh, and receiving a grant is kind of the first, it's the first rung on your, on your career ladder. It, it's what gets you started. It's your foundation. And it's not just your foundation to doing your work, but it also opens up a, um, you know, access to a group of investigators, such as the people who are on the call today, who become your network and who become people who, who, uh, you can sound ideas off and and actually bolster your career forward. So um, while writing manuscripts, you know, looking after patients, writing trials, these are all essential parts of our job. Funding is kind of the silent foundation on which all of that is based and without which none of us would actually have a career with longevity. So I think um, LC, thank you so much to LCFA for all the support and particularly for supporting young investigators because it's people like us who find it the most difficult to get started. And this is the time that I think funding is potentially the most critical. Yeah, and I can just add on. I mean, I believe, I have to go back and double check, but I believe my LCFA Young Investigator Research Award was actually the first grant that I got when I um, started my position here at the Hutch, the first foundation grant. And it, it's for this project where we're sequencing lung tumors from women who have never smoked that participated in the Women's Health Initiative. And it grew out of a really um, serendipitous interaction when I arrived at the Hutch and met Garnet Anderson, who's the PI of the Women's Health Initiative. And we realized what a resource this could be for lung cancer research that hadn't really fully been tapped into for that use. And so I got super excited, you know, oh yeah, we're gonna sequence all these cases and we're gonna learn all these new things about lung cancer. And then, you know, you start thinking, well, shoot, how am I going to fund this? And sequencing gets really expensive really quickly. And the NIH does not want to pay for a lot of sequencing. They want you to magically have the data and then make some biological insights that you're then going to follow up on and form hypotheses to validate. Um, and so I started writing like crazy. And I am so thrilled to have gotten this award from the LCFA um, because we were able to initiate the study from there and use some of the preliminary data to actually receive other um, awards, one internally and one other foundation award to 
um, finally get the full amount needed to sequence um, all of these women's tumors. So I'm just so grateful for the support from LCFA. These conversations are so important to understand why LCFA, its founders, board members, scientific advisory board, young investigators, and patient advocates work so hard to help LCFA carry out its mission. Thank you to everyone who participated in this podcast. The young investigators, those are Drs. Alice Berger, Christine Lovely, Triparna Sen, and Jerushka Nadu. Quite the list. Plus, LCFA board member and Hollywood producer, Marta Kaufman. Join us next time on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you.